The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thank you. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The contest over Civil War memory is no longer a new story in 21st century historiography. But a new book out of South Carolina has uncovered a host of new angles, from the battle before the war over how to remember John C. Calhoun, to the Battle of Charleston in 1961, fought within the Civil War Centennial Commission, to the idea of the submarine Hunley as the flagship of a steampunk confederacy. The book is Civil War Canon, Sites of Confederate Memory in South Carolina, The author is Dr. Thomas J. Brown of the University of South Carolina, and we'll talk with him tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a balmy Slightly, well, not quite balmy, slightly crisp Wednesday evening in the spring of 2015 from the campus of East Carolina University on, in Greenville, North Carolina, but not speaking for the university or the North Carolina system or anything like that, just uh, for myself as always. My guest will do the same. That's how we do it here at Civil War Talk Radio. 
uh, legal niceties out of the way. We are back after a week off from spring break. It was good to get away. I had a chance to, uh, uh, well, mostly come into the office and deal with stuff, but uh, but get a few things done, read a few books, and uh, visit the uh, the Broadfoot Publishing Bookstore, which, although it's just down the road in Wendale, spelled Wendell, but pronounced Wendale by the locals uh, in Wendale, North Carolina. And uh, if you're looking for anything not published in the last five years by an academic press, but earlier books, uh, all the way back to 19th century books at uh, shockingly uh, reasonable prices, I highly recommend it. I Having lived here this long, I thought I'd better go stop in someday, and spring break gave me the chance to do that. So uh, that is a completely unsolicited and unpaid-for plug, but it does lead to the uh, reminder that the Civil War uh, Talk Radio Book Fund is always open at www.impedimentsofwar.org, where you can learn who's going to be on the show next and who's been on the show and get links to past shows and so on, and you can donate to the book fund. I talk about that every week and threaten to buy all kinds of dangerous or useless products, but this week or last week, I was actually out there buying books, so your money actually does go toward that sometimes. Uh, but feel free to give your money directly to to Broadfoot Publishing uh, if you're in that part of the country. They also, I think, have a website, and you can get things from them there. So uh, a completely, again, unsolicited uh, offer from the website, from our website, from www.impedimentsofwar.org, you can find out what's going on on this program. We've got next week Patrick Lewis joining us to talk about uh, the Civil War in Kentucky. His book is called For Slavery and Union, Benjamin Buckner and Kentucky Loyalties in the Civil War. And then we've got uh, a Confederate the following week, Confederate story, record of a soldier in the late war, the Confederate memoir of John Wesley Bone, edited by Julianne Mahegan and David Mahegan. One or both of them will be joining us. That's on April 1st. Not fooling. They will really be here, or one of them will be at least. And then we've got a number of people in the weeks after that. Not sure what order they'll be in. Uh, Adam Dean, one week. Uh, hopefully Tom Parson from the Corinth Civil War Interpretive Center. I've been playing phone tag with him, and we'll get that set up. Uh, uh, Brian Jordan, I hope to get on this spring. John Fox, who's written about uh, Stewart's ride around the Army of the Potomac. At least one of those rides uh, will be with us. Lots of interesting things ahead, as always. Your suggestions are always welcome. Well, it has been uh, uh, relatively quiet. I'm starting to sound like Garrison Keillor now. Let's stop doing that. Uh, this weekend is the 150th uh, commemoration of the Battle of Bentonville here in North Carolina. And I'm thinking this would be a good excuse to go over to the Bentonville battlefield and see how they uh, commemorate this, what sort of public history uh, thing is going on. No doubt a reenactment of size will be taking place. Always curious to see that. Uh, other things going on, uh, a listener asks me to point out that the Massachusetts Historical Society is hosting a series of events entitled Lincoln, the End of the Civil War and a Legacy of Conflict. And on March 26th, that's a week from tomorrow, they're having their first presentation with 
uh, Jim McPherson and Lou Major, uh, titled A Civil Conversation. Uh, you can't go wrong with, with uh, those two historians. It should be interesting. So uh, I'm looking at my notes here. It doesn't say where this is. It's Massachusetts Historical Society, so that's a clue. Uh, the following Saturday, an all-day workshop called Emancipation and Assassination, Remembering Abraham Lincoln. But go to the website, www.masshist.org and go to their calendar and you can find out what's going on and when they're doing it. That uh, was a, that that was sent to me. I don't normally do these uh, free plugs for events or stores or anything, but it occurs to me it's only because no one's ever asked before. So not saying it'll happen every week, but uh, but there you go. If somebody has something interesting going on for listeners, let me know and I'll mention it. Uh, what else do we have to report here before jumping in. We got through spring break. We are moving forward. Uh, we've changed our clocks. That was a couple of weeks ago. We're back on time. Uh, we'll be back next week with uh, Patrick Lewis. Everything's back on schedule. Well, let us return then to the 19th century, and indeed we'll talk about the 19th, uh, 20th, and 21st centuries as we look at the memory of the Civil War, uh, which is the subject of a really remarkable, uh, I will say, a, uh, a, a complex and fascinating and challenging and, in many ways, intensely personal book called Civil War Canon, with one N in the middle, C-A-N-O-N, and the subtitle is Sites of Confederate Memory in South Carolina. The author is a professor in South Carolina, uh, Tom Brown. Tom, are you there? I am, Jerry. It's good to hear you. Good to hear you. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. Very well. Thanks for having me on. Well, always glad to have you on as a, a fellow uh, reformed lawyer and now historian, uh, and also a, a fellow Harvard person. Uh, longtime listeners recall that I used to try to mention that every week uh, that I had a Harvard degree trying to get some depreciation of the value uh, <laughs> uh, back from it. And I haven't mentioned it in the, the longest time, but, uh, but you're here, so that gives me an excuse to say, uh, hey, you went to Harvard too. At the same time, at the same time. That's right. We 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 had the uh, the rare honor to work with uh, our, our mentor David Donald. Uh, uh, seeing his name in the acknowledgments was was uh, a, a good reminder of that. Uh, but that was a long time ago. When you and I talked just briefly setting up this uh, uh, meeting tonight, you mentioned your daughter was home from spring break this week. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Uh, where where is she home from? Uh, she goes to Smith College. Excellent. Uh, I, my, my daughter, younger daughter, was on spring break last week, and I was thinking the same thing. You know, Dad, it doesn't really matter what you're doing at night because she's not going to be home hanging out with you if, if your daughter's <laughs> anything like mine. Uh, but uh, Smith, very good. So, uh, well, let's talk about this book. This is this brand new 2015 book, uh, recent uh, Beautiful cover, shiny, new. I opened it not being quite sure what to expect. And uh, it's there's, I guess, a, a touch of the postmodern and the breaking down of distance between author and reader in this book that we don't see in sort of 20th century uh, academic histories. Uh, you, you start out and, and end up as well telling us a, 
about uh, a remarkable person, uh, Ted Phillips. Could you tell us something about him? Um, sure. Um, uh, well, uh, there's a lot of good reasons to focus on South Carolina in um, talking about Civil War memory. But for me, one of them mm-hmm. is that you know I live in South Carolina, and um, and I've had this I had this uh, long friendship with um, just a just a remarkable um, Charleston antiquarian. Um, who connected me to the kind of the great antiquarian tradition of South Carolina, um, and specifically to Magnolia Cemetery. He was my college roommate, um, Charlestonian, and uh, through him I first visited um, Charleston, and then later first visited Columbia long long before um, I went to graduate school, let alone before I, I came to teach in, at Columbia. Um, and the book begins with that, begins with, with my first visit um, to Columbia, um, and a kind of midnight visit to the grave of the uh, Confederate poet Henry Timrod, um, partly to establish my kind of personal point of view, my, my personal uh, commitments in taking up this topic. When you mentioned that Ted Phillips was an antiquarian, that is, is a used to be, a, and still is for some, a dirty word among uh, historians. That's uh, the last thing you want to be. But you found a lot of value in what he did. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 certainly that is true. That you know, a lot of professional historians think of you know that is they're like an antithesis, you know, historian and antiquarian. Um, but um, and 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 I'm not saying that they're necessarily the same thing. But um, mm-hmm. antiquarians, um, what I take to be the essence of the antiquarian um, is um, a commitment to original research that they share with research, you know, uh, mm-hmm. academic historians. Um, and then find out all kinds of interesting things, and I, I try to offer some interesting things that, that Ted's approach led me to. Um, They're a little bit less interested, I think, than academic historians in answering the question, uh, why exactly does this matter? Because their answer is usually, um, because it happened here, you know, because it happened in my, in my neck of the woods. Um, antiquarians tend to be very committed to place. Right, antiquarians are usually committed to their their town. Uh, that was certainly very true of Ted. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's a book about place and place as a a framework for memory. And uh, antiquarianism is a great route into that. Well, you you start with the the cemetery in Charleston, and in you set up you know, from the start that this is really a different way of looking at Civil War memory, uh, beginning with the fact that it starts before the Civil War, uh, mm-hmm. that already in the 1850s in South Carolina, there's a battle over how to remember John C. Calhoun. Uh, who, who's battling, and what are the viewpoints? Um, yes, well, that, that is definitely one of, the, um, one of the great things about working on South Carolina is that, you know, this is where the Confederacy begins, and um, memory is part of making that beginning. Memory is part of secession. And so um, Calhoun is a valuable resource in that. Um, you know, he dies in 1850, and there are a lot of groups who want to uh, claim his mantle. Um, the first group into it is the um, kind of radical fire eaters associated with Robert um, Barnwell Rhett, who um, sort of see Calhoun as a as a valuable tool for them um, in promoting a, um, a separate secession, not waiting for other states to be ready to secede. Um, they basically get um, 
kind of pushed out of the way by um, the um, cooperationists who were in favor of uh, developing secessionist sentiment in other states, and particularly by a group of women who sympathize with the cooperationists but also have their own agenda in terms of what women's role in public life should be. Well, that's a theme that reoccurs throughout the book, that that as you look at memory, it's never just... uh, it's never just about the past, but it's the way that people reflect their current perception of their own role in society. And, and gender uh, appears repeatedly in here. It is it would is, is if somebody were to say, "Well, oh, here we are bringing you know gender into everything." Uh, is this just not a, a a fashionable academic thing to do? Uh, uh, I, I'm saying that because I, I completely don't believe it. I, I, I'm fascinated by the gender arguments you make here, so I'm just setting up a, a straw man argument for you to knock down. Uh, sure. Uh, why is it important? Um, well, I, I, I don't think it's particularly um, unusual to, to emphasize that you know gender is a big part of Confederate memory, um, right? Mm-hmm. The um, women who were active in the Ladies Memorial Associations in the immediate aftermath of the war and then the United Daughters of the Confederacy from the 1890s um, you know, to the mid-20th century really have been um, the subject of a lot of study. Mm-hmm. Um, what I do with the Ladies Calhoun Monument Association is kind of move that story up a little bit um, in ways that have been done a little bit in people who look at memory in Richmond. Um, but um, I don't think that is, is surprising, that women are a big part of that memory story. Um, I mean, I hope I say some new things about it. Um, mm-hmm. But I, do, I don't think there's any question that women are a big part of the story of Confederate memory. In some ways, what's really striking about the, the, the women in the book is that they drop out. Um, women are a huge part of the story of Confederate memory uh, roughly until the centennial era um, when they um, largely fade as a, as a major force in Confederate memory. Uh, and that, I don't think it's really been written about at all. No, they're in it, as you pointed out, from the, from the ladies uh, in Calhoun Memorial Society through the UDC after the war and, and other uh, memorial societies that have been written about. But they are not, uh, but even there, you point out there are divisions within how different generations of women remember the war. Uh, it's time for us to take a short break, so I want to come back to that point when we return. We'll talk uh, about the memory after the war, the, the Lost Cause era, and this question of how within, not just within the, the Lost Cause movement, but within gender, within uh, between generations, there are all these divisions that, that you've uncovered. We'll talk more about that when we come back in just a minute. Our guest tonight is Tom Brown. He is the author of Civil War Canon. Sites of Confederate Memory in South Carolina. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. 
Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Thomas J. Brown, author of Civil War Canon, Sites of Confederate Memory in South Carolina. It's a book about what it says, the various uh, historic sites, or more accurately, the historic battles over historic uh, memory within South Carolina, connected to many sites, uh, particularly in Charleston. We talked uh, a bit in the first segment about John C. Calhoun and the battle to uh, remember him before the Civil War. But it's after the war, of course, that memory uh, proper uh, of that period begins. And, Tom, we were discussing how uh, men and women remembered things differently. Uh, but not just not just did men and women remember differently, but different groups of women had different agendas. Uh, can you talk about that? Sure. I, I think a good example of that is, um, so one chapter talks about the uh, two monuments at the South Carolina State House. Uh, in front of the South Carolina State House is a monument to the Confederate soldier, uh, the exemplary man. And the monument is, is um, put up uh, in a campaign led by South Carolina women. And it's very much a recognition of exemplary manhood by women. And diametrically opposite is a monument to uh, Confederate women that was um, put up by um, South Carolina men. And um, they're put up uh, in two different generations. The uh, Soldier Monument is a campaign that begins in 1869 and ends in 1879. The Women's Monument is is, uh, 1909 to 1911. And both of them imagine what sort of ideal relations between men and women are like, um, but they're quite different. They're quite different. The war generation... Um, it has this vision of 
um, male-female relations and, and kind of the ideals of manhood and womanhood that are much more fluid, much more overlapping um, by the... Um, uh, and the ideal of what is womanhood is is much more grounded in kind of um, evangelical domesticity, this, uh, you know, kind of the Christian ideal of the household broadening out to the society. Um, by the early 20th century, uh, you have a lot more separation in, in what is um, ideals of, of manhood and womanhood. And the ideal of womanhood is, is centered a lot more around work, um, for the women of the United Daughters of the Confederacy compared to the women who put up the, the soldier monument 40 years earlier, the women of the United Daughters of the Confederacy imagine, envision themselves as, as workers. You know, they're part of a, a broad women's club movement that leads women into roles in municipal politics and, and um, uh, charitable work. So, I mean, more women have taken advantage of higher education by this time. Absolutely. So, in the in the earlier version, the the woman's role during the Civil War was one of sacrifice, and in the Absolutely. later version, it's one of contribution. They they they're making stuff. They're helping out. Absolutely. Well, yes, very much, very much. Now, how, um, and how so does, figures yeah, like the nurses uh, come? They, they come out differently. They come out differently. So how does the men's the the soldiers' monument is just of a soldier? How does it convey this idea that that the women are just back home? waiting and mourning. Um, I don't think it does convey the idea, the, the soldier monument, I don't think it does convey the idea that women are just back home waiting and mourning. Um, you know, it is a monument that women put up um, that they took the lead on uh, that goes right mm. in front of the state house. I think it conveys the idea that um, women are partners in this, uh, you know, post-war Confederate enterprise um, and that they are very much part of the team. Um, and that is it partly you can see in in how that the South Carolina Monument Association formed it it forms right after the first elections under the um, biracial suffrage mandated by reconstruction and Republican governments come in um, and the South Carolina Monument Association is one of several organizations that grows up as part of a resistance to reconstruction so it envisions women playing a you know a political role um, their political role is going to be to to sponsor this statue. So I, I think that that monument envisions women as being quite active in politics. The the monument much later, um, mm-hmm. from you know the early 20th century, on the other hand, that's sponsored by men, is is very much about women being home and and waiting, and it's very mm-hmm. much a backlash to the feminism that was producing the woman suffrage, bringing the woman suffrage movement into the South, for example. That's right. See, I asked that question backwards, didn't I? You you point out that one of the draft versions for the monument to the women, built by, paid for by the men in the early 20th century, has a active sort of Amazonian woman, and she looks too much like a, a suffragist to uh, uh, that they don't want that kind of monument. The That's men right. don't want that kind of monument. Uh, so, uh, what about within? Within the the women's movement themselves, uh, the, the women as they remember the Civil War, generational fault lines open up uh, in this as well that, that you portray. Yes, um, as I say, the, the the women who are uh, the founders of the United Daughters of the Confederacy um, have a, a a different version of what it means to be engaged in civic life than the women who were sort of the evangelical. 
um, types of the 1860s and 1870s. It is, it is much more organized around work. As you say, it's much more organized around productivity. It, it draws much more on experiences of education. Um, so the, um, a major figure there, the, the Poppenheim sisters of Charleston, you know, they, they, they go to Vassar. Um, hmm. And then they, they come back to Charleston and lead these lives that, that brings one of them to be the president general of the UDC. Um, it, it's, a, it's an outlet for scholarship. It's an outlet for celebrating women's productivity. Um, you know, it's, it's very different from an outlet for, say, you know, conversion mm-hmm. or moral reform. What about social class? This also ties into how, how the war is remembered in Charleston. Yes. And, well, this, I mean, the, the, these statues I'm talking about here are in Columbia. Yeah, the, the yep. um, Soldiers' Monument um, it definitely envisions more cross-class interaction, right? But it's a common soldier... Um, who is celebrated there. The organization is um, set up so that uh, the membership dues are, are tiny, the idea being, as the extremely elite president of the society says, women have already, you know, their sacrifices in the war and the deaths of their husbands or sons or brothers or, or, or whatever um, have earned them the right to be members. So there's an attempt to be very inclusive in the immediate post-war Effort, which not unrelated to the political um, goals of this organization. By the early 20th century, on the other hand, the, the class of politics are a lot more overt. And so, you know, the women celebrate work. You know, when they talk about the ideal man, though, they're much more, by the early 20th century, focused on um, generals, specifically Wade Hampton, um, and an, a general who epitomizes the relationship between military rank and social hierarchy. Yeah, it was interesting. You talk about in the the state house the uh, the relic room, the sort of Confederate, uh, more of a shrine than a museum, uh, from from the way it's described and pictured. Uh, again, that's another reflection of this. It's it's all about the the leadership of the Confederacy. It's not about the the common soldier. That's right. There's there's a lot of Hampton relics. There are pictures of various other uh, South Carolina generals in the original collection. This, we're talking about the collection of the 1890s and mm-hmm. early 1900s. Um, but there's not a, a big effort to focus on ordinary soldiers. There's a, there is considerable effort to focus on women in the home front and uh, shows you know what they were making homespun clothes from. Um, so it's it's productive women and kind of commanding men that is the the women's vision of of the UDC era there. Let me move forward to uh, one of the most notable women of, or a woman through whom we have much of our modern conception of uh, home life in the Confederacy, among among the elite at least, uh, Mary Boykin Chesnut. I would guess a lot of listeners have read A Diary from Dixie or uh, uh, some of the other versions of Mary Chesnut's Civil War, uh, or the uh, that tell a story in, in diary form of uh, what it was like to be a uh, plantation mistress, somebody who seemed to know everybody in the Confederacy. Uh, you, you have a, a chapter about literature from South Carolina, but th- this book really stands out. It's, again, most, many listeners will know this, it's not just a diary uh, that one simply prints up, it's a, a work of imaginative uh, creation uh, why? Why did you? Why focus on this book? Why, why is it the the 
Well, um, I wanted to organize the book around sites, around places. Mm-hmm. And the um, reconstruction rhetoric, the resistance to reconstruction rhetoric is all about home, right? It's the demand for home rule is, is the slogan. Mm-hmm. And so I was interested in visions of home and, and how does home rule play out as a site that uh, combines private life and public life. And it turns out that there are a lot of um, representations of this. And, and mostly I'm interested, the representations that I focus on are books, although the, the chapter ends with a couple actual people's houses. Um, mm-hmm. But um, uh, the novels, because novels are so often organized around home, um, it provided, the novels provided a good way to get into the subject of what, were this, what was the image of home in, in the resistance to Reconstruction. You, so you go through a series of, of novels. You talk about uh, many of them not well-remembered. Uh, I guess De Forest's uh, Miss Ravenel's Conversion, still read by, by some uh, people interested in, in the war. But so this is sort of a side question. Uh, how are, are any of these novels still readable, or, or is it is this work to to go through these things? Um, <laughs> many of them are quite minor, and I think I think that's an interesting thing. What I was interested there is, uh, you know, Mary Chestnut has emerged, uh, you know, especially since the C. V. Ed Woodward edition of her mm-hmm. work. But even even the fact that C. V. Ed Woodward made this edition of her work, you know, since Edmund uh, Wilson wrote about Mary Chestnut, she has emerged as you know, one of the major voices of the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I wanted to do was kind of situate her among many forgotten, and in many cases lesser writers, but who were addressing quite similar topics. You know, the topic that I'm interested in, Mary Chestnut, is what is her, what is the narrative that she constructs from her experience about Reconstruction and about the end of the war? And um, so anyhow, a lot of people do that. And what they do is basically they're trying to bring to the end of the, they're trying to bring to the Civil War the same formula that William Gilmore Sims had used in South Carolina literature for the Revolution, right? So it's kind of where's romantic literature going? And uh, some of them uh, do it remarkably well, um, I think, uh, at least a few. I mean, some uh, readably. Um, mm-hmm. The strongest, aside from Mary Chestnut of, of this early, is a woman named Selena Means who was um, a you know, completely forgotten writer, but her book, mm-hmm. um, 34 Years, is um, I thought, yeah, kind of readable. Um, 34 Years is the title because it's the age um, of the, the protagonist at the end of the novel, and it's uh, kind of old not to be married, um, mm-hmm. basically is the, is the implication there. And it's about this um, woman and her attempt to construct home and eventually decision not to have a home. Um, and how that relates to resistance to Reconstruction. Now, in some of these writers, you talk about themes of, of uh, you know, either resistance, reconciliation. Uh, uh, but you, you suggest that Mary Boykin Chesnut really uh, use the word parodies uh, these these traditional views. Her her novel does not end up like the other ones, or not like the the traditional ones. Uh, and I admit, as I was reading your book, I was thinking, uh, I was remembering lectures from uh, Professor Donald uh, many decades ago, uh, talking about the the symbolism or the uh, representations in the book. 
and uh, they have stayed with me, and they, they came back as I was reading your writing. So I guess that's actually a direct question. Did did some of this in your mind go back to uh, to David Donald's interpretations of, of Mary Chesnut? Um, well, I remember those lectures well myself, um, and um, absolutely, they're uh, inspiring. Um, I think you know some of what he was lecturing is is building on Edmund Wilson, and and mm-hmm. Wilson. Um, focuses on the way that uh, Mary Chestnut used her friend uh, Sally Buchanan Preston, Buck Preston, as mm-hmm. the epitome of the Southern Belle, and the failure of the romance between Buck Preston and John Bell Hood is a symbol of the failure of the Confederacy. Um, and that, I think, is a pretty, now, you know, now a reasonably well-known literary um, saga. And mm-hmm. I, I kind of looked at the way Chestnut did some, something similar with a different person, um, her niece, Harriet Grant, um, mm-hmm. someone that she shared a home with much of the time, um, who is uh, an utter scalawag and uh, someone that Chestnut has a very difficult time with. And if Buck Preston does not marry in the book, and, and the failure of this wonderful Southern Belle to marry is to, to Chestnut, you know, a symbol of the failure of the Confederacy, Harriet Grant marrying, marrying extremely successfully is also a failure of the symbol of the Confederacy, and it's a symbol of what's going to come. And what's going to come is not something that Mary Chestnut is very happy about. You know, she suggests that what's going to come is going to be a world of, of merchants rather than planters, and she very much associates Harriet Grant with the merchant class and Buck Preston with the planter class. Yeah, Grant's husband is uh, is uh, a northerner but fought for the Confederacy and, and uh, you know, has revolutionary... Heritage seems like the ideal. Catch, yes, and that, that's but, sort of the, the classic end of these books. You know, these minor books. Mm-hmm. Um, the classic end is an intersectional marriage, right. and so, for example, um, the the one that I start with by Sally Chapin, but most the si- most simplest version. Um, you know, young planter son is going to recapture the family fortune. He. Um, winds up marrying the wealthy northern woman, brings her back, and he's going to you know, restart the plantation, and, and all will be well for the South. Um, that's not the way Mary Chestnut saw it. She has an intersectional marriage, too. Intersectional marriages had become a bit of a formula by the time, um, by this point. And they became a formula pretty long, even before the war. They were a bit of a literary mm-hmm. formula. And uh, so she had, she had this one right before her, and she really worked it. And, and, and yeah, he he ends up well. Well, he's he's a, like you said, he's a, from the merchant class. He's not not going to save the South the way the South wants to be saved. And so were Grant's well, parents. So Grant's Grant's father was a merchant. You know, she's recognizing this merchant. There's a merchant impulse within the South. It's very much like Faulkner. You know, the the rise of the Snopeses. You know, this this these store um, country store owners who are going to do the South in. That's what Mary Chestnut sees coming. And and perhaps not inaccurately. Well, we'll <laughs> take another break uh, in a few moments. Uh, we can talk about the uh, uh, a number of topics, the, the Confederate uh, battle flag controversy uh, in which the country store owners do seem to be the ultimate winners. Uh, but, but we'll get to that in just a few minutes. We're going to take a short break now. We're talking with Tom Brown, author of Civil War Canon, Sites of Confederate Memory in South Carolina. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Thomas J. Brown, professor of history at the University of South Carolina and author of Civil War Canon. It's with two ends, one in the middle. Sites of Confederate memory in South Carolina. I've been talking about literary memories, uh, political memories expressed through monuments. Uh, but Tom, I definitely want to ask about uh, a particular chapter before we get too close to the end. Uh, you write extensively about the Confederate uh, submarine Hunley, which... Again, anyone listening to this show has heard of the Hunley, the unsuccessful submarine. Well, successful in uh, sinking a, a ship, but not in coming back alive. Uh, you call this chapter the Steampunk Confederacy. For the benefit of my mother, who is listening and may not be familiar with uh, the term steampunk, uh, what does it mean? Yeah, steampunk is a, a style of, of fashion that is about... Um, a Victorian futurism, you know, going to the the, steam, the era of steam, uh, steam propulsion and, and steam energy, and imagining a future from there. So that um, what would a fly, what would a, a flying machine look like, a dirigible, and uh, and a variety of other kind of modernistic things, a computer, uh, in in a famous steampunk book. So. Um, I call it the steampunk confederacy because the the way that the Hunley has been presented um, is is on that line. It is um, taking this um, this vessel and then imagining it futuristically. 
um, and then presenting it to the public as a is a much more futuristic as a very futuristic thing. Well, rather than I mean, a there, death there, trap. Yeah, <laughs> which it obviously was. Uh, I mean, Jules Verne or later H.G. Wells, you know, our our nineteenth century science fiction writers, early twentieth century. Uh, they're sort of the godfathers of, of steampunk. They they actually did envision this at the time, and Verne imagines a submarine that can sail 20,000 leagues under the sea. Uh, why isn't the Hunley? I mean, the Hunley is a submarine that sinks a ship uh, in 1860. Uh, I'm caught out here. 63, was it? Uh, um, 64, yeah, 64. 64 was it the action. Yeah. Um, the, the, the technology, the fundamental technology of the Hunley had been um, established um, by Robert Fulton, um, you know, 70 years earlier. And um, it was not a particularly technologically advanced um, piece of equipment. Um, certainly nowhere near as advanced as it is presented um, by the, the promoters of Hunley memory. Um, and certainly nowhere as advanced as the is the technology that is used to conserve the Hunley, which is extremely advanced. And so a big part of that chapter is about the ways in which the conservation project comes to shape the historical topic. Right? So, so that the memory well, of the Hunley comes to shape our, our what the, you know, the, the, the commemoration of the Hunley comes to shape the meaning of the Hunley itself. Um, could you say the same about the monitor? I'm thinking that that is using the same kind of techniques, cutting edge conservation techniques, but the monitor really is a a for, forerunner of modern naval technology in a way that the Hunley isn't. Yes, I think that's right. the 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 monitor was a a, a threshold step forward. You know, the the whole ironclad, um, you know, era. Mm-hmm. Is a is a big difference from what came before, whereas the Hunley is not a big difference from the the many many submarines that are made um, in the nineteen mid nineteenth century, some of which are made in the so, Civil War. So, um, well, that that's a point worth considering. And so, the, the Hunley is not a pioneer in the same way. And you know, I mean, Jules Verne's submarine is is a really cool submarine. You've got you is, sit down yeah. at a nice table and have roast beef dinner and look at the fish <laughs> sailing by. Play the organ, yeah. Right. Play the organ. That that's a cool submarine. Um, and, and so so you're suggesting the Hunley's promoters give us a sense of the Hunley as part of this modern 19th century, but it's really just a thing with a hand cranked propeller, just that's just right. a tube. That's right, and and so a big part of that becomes, you know, that has not always been the story of the Hunley. Um, that's not the way the story of the Hunley was told in the late 19th century. In the late 19th mm-hmm. century, everybody saw the really modern thing as the David, um, and the David um, did not um, submerge. It also was a the basic point of both of them is the same, you know, to deliver a torpedo blast. Um, but mm-hmm. the David um, struck people in the late 19th century as modern because it had an engine. And, um, you know, engine-driven torpedo delivery um, seemed to people in the late 19th century, well, that's, that's really modern. And, um, you know, we're talking about people who are champions of Confederate memory, like Jefferson Davis. Jefferson mm-hmm. Davis thought that David was really important, but the Hunley was not worth mentioning in his memoirs. Um, and then the, the Hunley, uh, you know, when the submarine is, you know, the, the submarines are invented, real submarines, submarines with mm-hmm. engines, um, there's a big burst of Hunley memory. But it is remembered as the antithesis of the modern submarine. 
and it is that is the period in the in the early twentieth century where the Hunley really becomes a, a legendary thing, um, legendary um, like a tall tale for how many people die in it, and and you start getting these stories of the Hunley sinking, you know six times or, you know, basically every time it goes to sea and, you know, 40 people, 50 people dying in it. And the documentation for those stories is never good, but it, 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 it fit, um, it served a purpose. It served a purpose um, in a time where uh, you have this brand new technology like the new submarines or like the new airplanes at that time. Um, and the Hunley was the opposite of this. Um, it was a reminder that technology isn't everything. Because remember, some of the technology at that time is not so happy, um, like factory labor. Um, well, and, and so, I'd say in the submarine itself, you point out it's important to separate the Hunley from the Hun. Uh, the German U-boat, nineteen fourteen, nineteen sixteen, was used by the bad guys yes, in America. That's right. Which is exactly a bit of an awkwardness in, in the Hunley submarine celebration at that time. Um, and just so to say that, yeah, this is very different. You know, our guys were going out there and dying. Um, so, who are the promoters of Hunley memory now? Who, who cares um, about well, this? Well, the Hunley, um, the promotion of the Hunley is managed by um, something called the Hunley Commission, um, which has been headed by, uh, it was organized by uh, former state senator Glenn McConnell, um, more recently lieutenant governor and currently the president of the College of Charleston. And the uh, Hunley Commission, in turn, contracts a lot of its work with the Friends of the Hunley. Um, a private organization. So, I mean, why so when I talk about the promoters of Hunley memory, I'm mostly right. talking about the Hunley Commission and the Friends of the Hunley. That sounds like it'd be a relatively small group, maybe passionately committed, but not... Uh, small, but extremely powerful. Oh. Um, and, and I think the power of you can see in the kinds of productions that uh, have been put forward. The Hunley, it's hard to think of a... Um, a, an initiative in Confederate memory, um, as opposed to a defense of Confederate memory, like the, the flag controversies, but an initiative in Confederate memory um, since the civil rights era that, that compares in, in impact to the celebration of the Hunley that we've had in the last 20 years. Well, you mentioned the flag controversy, and that's something, again, listeners all have heard of the, the question what flag should any Confederate flag fly over the South Carolina state capitol. Uh, you present that as showing a real sea change in who who's on whose side. Uh, yeah. Can you talk I, about I, that? Pardon me? Oh, go ahead and talk about that. I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, I don't, um, I, I don't uh, approach it so much in terms of like what should be done. Mm-hmm. Um, what I, again, I, what I approach it at in, in terms of is like how is what happens in the Confederate flag controversies of the, the 1990s, um, you know, the continue, um, mm-hmm. how do they relate to Confederate memory before? And the, the, the basic theme is um, that it's very different. It's very different. Yeah. Um, it's got a different structure in terms of gender. As I say, the women drop out. The women had, uh, had been very important in, in Confederate memory for a long time. Um, it, the Confederate memory, uh, as we were talking about with the Confederate monuments, had had, had a lot of kind of class implications. It was about reinforcing the class order. Um, the Confederate flag controversy is very neo-populist. Um, the, the defense of the Confederate flag tends to be very neo-populist. It is not elite at all. Um, the uh, lost cause had been very religious 
Um, and the defense of the Confederate flag is not primarily religious. And in fact, the big story is the is that the um, conf- the lost cause was a you know kind of quasi religious movement in many ways with rituals like Memorial Day at the heart of it. And the um, what I'm interested in the flag is uh, not just kind of what it means, but how it means, and how it means in the mid 20th century comes not to be so much quasi-religious in the way that the United States flag was traditionally quite you know, quasi-religious, um, but instead highly commercial. Um, highly commercial in terms of its use at uh, you know, commercialized leisure like sporting events, um, highly commercial in appearing on all kinds of tchotchkes, um, highly commercial in, in you know, all kinds of ways. Um, and that's a different sort of form of, uh, of giving meaning to a symbol. Um, and suggests a different kind of society. Well, it, so we ended our last segment talking about how the uh, the, the shopkeepers, the, the storekeepers, would take over the South merchant interests, and here we have this this really commercialized emblem uh, becoming the, you know commercial interests dominating the uh, uh, the use of the Confederate flag. It's not, as you say, not held sacred. It's not you know don't ever let it touch the ground. No, you can put it on the bumper of your car. You can do anything with it. Sure, yeah. So uh, yeah, it's, so, a, it's, it's fair enough. And I, I think, you know, it, it, the book is about the, there's a wide variety of forms of Confederate memory. And certainly, you know, Mary, this is not what Mary Chestnut had in mind. I mean, she was a diehard Confederate. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, the kind of Confederate memory she envisioned was not bumper stickers um, on cars or anything like that. Not the Dukes of Hazard with the not the General Dukes of Lee. Yes, no. this, yes this, is, this, is, this is a bit of her nightmare, I think, yeah. Uh, we're approaching the close. I want to talk about something you you open with the uh, Confederate poet Henry, uh, with the Confederate poet uh, Timrod, and you close with uh, Bob Dylan's unacknowledged use of Timrod's uh, ideas in his lyrics. Uh, how did you find that? Oh, there was a bit of a flap. Well, that's, <laughs> it's a book written by someone who lives in South Carolina, and um, certainly when um, you know Bob Dylan is borrowing from Henry Timrod, it, it makes the front page of our newspapers. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was it was a big story down here. How how I mean, so how does one come across that? Uh, somebody somebody's just reading Henry Timrod's poetry one day when they have Dylan playing in the background. And go, oh, that sounds the same. Uh, well, how how did how was that found out? I I have no yeah. doubt that that was found out by Dylan fans who um, fed the lyrics of his newest album into an internet search engine, um, and that he knew people would do that. I mean, his, his, the album before that was called Love and Theft in quotation marks, uh, uh, um, a reference to the Eric Lott book, and it was very much about the whole idea of appropriation. And you know, modern times is is also about that. I mean, it's a it's a bit of a shout out to Charlie Chaplin which was a movie that um, was controversial for, for being based so directly on a previous other movie. Uh, I guess there's, you know, there's a saying that you know, you know, great artists don't borrow, they steal. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, I think uh, Chaplin and, and Dylan are kind of lining up with a Shakespearean tradition on that one. Wow. Well, do you see... Uh, what are you working on now? Does this... Phil, scratch the itch for Confederate memory, uh, and you've been doing this this uh, you know work on, on public commemoration for a long time. Uh, is there another project uh, in the works, or 
Where are you um, headed? He, yes, this book kind of jumped the queue. I, I've been working for a very long time um, on a book about Civil War monuments, North and South, and um, for partly because of the death of, of Ted Phillips and the way I got you know tied up in um, or, or, or caught up in um, editing his his book about people buried in Magnolia Cemetery and got tied to this. South Carolina antiquarian tradition, and, and also because of the sesquicentennial, and, uh, which led me to think about modern things like the flag controversy and the Hunley more carefully, the, the South Carolina book moved to the top. But now I'm, um, I'm excited to be um, finishing the book about um, Civil War monuments. Well, we'll look forward to it getting done when it's done uh, in less than five. I think it was 2006 was the last time we did the show. So you've got nine years to finish the book. Uh, and we'll, we'll do this interview again, <laughs> hopefully sooner next time. But Tom, it has I been good so. talking with you. Thank you very much, Jerry. And uh, listeners, you'll want to get a copy of Civil War Canon, Sites of Confederate Memory in South Carolina. It is a fascinating book, and you'll enjoy it, uh, as I enjoyed our conversation tonight, Tom. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.